Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is without question our uh, a conversation on economics today. Catherine Mann is with us at Queen Victoria Street with Francine in London. She's the head of Citigroup, the former chief economist for the OECD, and now joining us from Dubai, the Secretary General of the OECD, Anhel Guria, uh, with us as well. Dr. Guria, this is wonderful to have you and Dr. Mann uh, with us as well. Anhel Guria, I want to start with the state of the global economy. We see disinflation here, there, and everywhere. Give us the measurement that the OECD has right now of a move to economic slowdown, to recession, or maybe even to Lawrence Summers' secular stagnation? Uh, I am uh, not uh, predicting that there's going to be a recession. What I am predicting and what we are seeing and living is that uh, we're slowing down the growth. We thought we were going to be closer to 4% growth in 2019, 2020, and our latest projection is of 3.5%. What happened in the meantime? The trade tensions. And why is it that we are having the trade tensions affect the uh, prospects for world economy so much? Well, basically because uh, when you invest to produce and you produce to sell, but if you don't know whether you can sell or you don't know what price you can sell, what tariff is going to be applied to your sales, then what happens is you don't invest. And if you don't invest, then you do not have growth. This is what is happening now, and this is the size of the impact, and this is why this is so serious. Um, Mr. Guria, good morning from London. Paul Krugman was talking to us a little bit earlier on about interest rates and, you know, the recession. He basically, you know, put it bluntly in saying the world is worse off now than in 2007 if there were to be a crisis. Do you agree with that statement? No, I don't. We've learned a lot. And the banking system is uh, uh, much more strongly capitalized. It's better regulated. Uh, it's also better supervised. But it is true that some of the capital that we had, some of the ammunition that we had before the crisis has been used precisely to deal with the crisis. And therefore, in many cases, for example, the fiscal tool, the degrees of freedom are less. The monetary policy tool, well, we've used it to the hilt for uh, practically 10 years and therefore you have less uh, flexibility in the, on that score does it but does it is it likely that we see a us recession this year and if the fed doesn't have the tools what does that mean to where we end up i do not see a recession in the united states in fact the united states is one of the economies that is uh, doing better uh, and at the same time, what the Fed has done is to be evidence-based, which they said they would do, and they're doing it. And that is, if you see a slowdown in the economy, uh, then, of course, you go slower in terms of the increases in the uh, interest rates. So already they said instead of three, 
maybe we'll be doing two. And at the same time, you're having this very, very healthy well, and very vi vigorous job creation. Well, Anil Guria with us in Dubai and in London, Catherine Mann. And Catherine, I'm pleased to say joining us in the conversation as well is Mohammed El Arian, who's watching and sends in an immediate email for Dr. Mann. Catherine Mann, very simply here, can any kind of global slowdown, global disinflation, the sluggishness in Europe, and on and on, is that enough to stall or even drag down the U.S. economy? How does that reaction function work? Well, the U.S. economy is a much uh, more closed economy than virtually any other one uh, in the globe. And right now, the domestic uh, source of growth coming from the tight labor market and rising wages is providing momentum for the U.S. economy. There is still also in place uh, government spending associated with mm -hmm. the fiscal program. Uh, that has not faded completely yet. Uh, and so uh, if you look at the U.S. economy, it has a very very strong domestic uh, sources of growth. That doesn't mean it's immune from the rest of the world. It doesn't mean it's immune from the trade tensions and the consequences of the trade tensions. It just means that in right. the waiting between the two of them, the U.S. economy is, is growing more robustly because the domestic side is much more resilient. Uh, it won't, you know, I think what we, we, we recognize is, is that you know, if there is a exacerbation of the trade tensions, if we get to uh, a much broader array of trade tensions, not just China, but also potentially with Europe, um, Section 232 uh, issues coming up here uh, later in the month, right. potentially a report issued about that, um, you know, you start to layer on top of each other these issues on the trade side, and it feeds back to domestic investment. Domestic investment pauses. Uh, domestic investment pauses, just as Anhal Degria said. Um, we were a team, you know, uh, back there when I was chief economist at the OECD, and, and that's exactly the point. Well, you, you weigh on uncertainty, you weigh on investment, and ultimately okay. that drags down the economy. But this is really important, Dr. Guria, with Laurence Boone and, and your team at OECD in Paris. What is the state of the fat tail right now? What is our financial stability? What is our ability to withstand a set of shocks or even one shock that could be out there? As I said before, yeah. today the banks are much more strongly capitalized and they've been capitalized anywhere from uh, seven to ten times more than they were before the crisis and they're better regulated they're better supervised all these stress tests that are constantly being made and, and at the same time uh, the, the the world is uh, you know uh, better prepared to deal with the bad news uh, what we're very bad at is dealing with surprises and yes. uh, what I see here is that uh, some bad news in the offing. I do not see very many, uh, you know, uh, out of the blue surprises happening in the world economy that could really, you know, cause a, a negative growth uh, a recession as has been suggested. I do not see a recession in the horizon. Uh, Mr. Guria, how much do you worry about this, uh, this war of words between France and Italy? Is it going to hurt investment? And is it really a kind of, you know, d difficult moment for Europe that's crystallized just with this? Listen, wars, um, unless they are the war against uh, hunger or the war against uh, ignorance or... Uh, 
You know, the, the wars are bad, and uh, even wars of words are bad. But I have to say, if there's going to be a war, it better be uh, of words rather than of the alternatives. So I'd, I'd say at this stage, there are issues that have to be addressed between uh, Italy and uh, France. There's a new government in Italy. It's installing itself. It's trying to find its place, its space. It's dealing with the European Union. And at the same time, uh, now this confrontation with France is very unfortunate for the atmosphere right. uh, around Europe. But uh, I'm sure the wisdom of the two countries uh, is, is going to find a way no. out. This has been wonderful. Angel Guria, thank you so much from Dubai this morning. And Catherine Mann in London as well, the former chief economist for Dr. Guria at the OECD. is what you and I have been watching since Davos 0 0.107, 0 0.09. You know, it's below 0 0.10. I get it. But the disinflation is out there is tangible. Why don't you bring in Dr. Mann, who's, who's really fabulous on this continental disinflation. We're it's seeing joining us from London, formerly the chief economist of the OECD and currently the Citigroup Global Chief Economist. Good morning to you, Catherine. We are pricing out global growth and we are seemingly pricing down inflation expectations as well. Your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, you know, if, if growth uh, comes in uh, dramatically slower, then, then you would expect inflation to, uh, to also come in slower as well. But I do think that we, we have to remember that the domestic economies uh, in the form of uh, tight labor markets, this is true for the United States in spades, it's also true in Europe. Many of those economies have tight labor markets. They do have resilient consumption. And we are seeing wages rise, uh, both in the U.S. and in Europe, and, and even in Japan. And so, uh, you know, what you have there, if you have nominal wages rising and you have prices not coming through with any top-line inflation, then you get real wage increases, and that's actually pretty good for the workers. So from a market's perspective, Catherine, I'm always trying to work out where the element of surprise might come from. Yeah. Where is the boat too stacked to the one side, so to speak? Do you think some people have gravitated too much to the one side of the boat, calling for lower growth, pricing out inflation, in an economy here in America where things still look pretty good? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the issue is, is that we've got, as I say, this domestic resilience that comes from very uh, strong labor markets. But we have there's undeniable uh, trade trade headwinds. Um, and the real question is, can those trade headwinds be re be uh, dampened, be resolved before there's permanent damage to um, uh, investor psyche and and following through that to, to consumers as well? I mean, I think there's, there's still time. There's still time to get resolution uh, to, uh, to revive trade. Yeah. Um, uh, and to, to, to support global growth. But, but you know, the time is running out for that. What you're saying, what Richard Claret is saying, John Farrow, I'd mentioned Steve Stanley at Amherst Pierpont, among others, is there's a two-part GDP calculation. One is a domestic yeah. resiliency, mm -hmm. and the other is all this international noise. What's right. our history of escaping the international noise to, as Claret would say, a solid outcome? 
Well, the U.S. has more is is a is a larger economy. It's a more closed economy, and so it is uh, uh, less buffeted by the external environment. But uh, as compared to, for example, uh, the European economies or or Japan, um, but you know, it it's it's not a good idea to be complacent and to say that there's no feedback loop from a slowing global economy back to the U.S. That's that's a complacency to say that the U.S. is a closed economy and and can weather the weather the trade storms. It can't because um, a lot of U.S. companies are outwardly, uh, you know, they're outwardly engaged. Uh, They get a lot of profits and sales from the foreign marketplace. And so if the global economy is not doing well, those companies in the U.S. will not do well. Those are the companies that are part of the S&P and part of the, uh, you know, the uh, Dow. And so you'll have financial markets reacting to a slowdown in global markets, even if Part of the U.S. is still very strong. So you get a financial market situation where that uh, turbulence on Wall Street reflecting global uh, slowdown uh, and the trade war, that feeds into the domestic economy. You can't you can't completely escape that, even so, in a closed economy like the U.S. So, Catherine, to your point, the mechanism for the feedback loop is financial markets. How important is the FX channel with the dollar showing some renewed strength over the last week or so? Well, so the so you know when we think about the challenges of of the dollar strength, the the issue there becomes um, how are uh, emerging markets in particular, but uh, but markets in general, uh, going to be able to handle uh, debt service, uh, debt service of dollar denominated debt, because of course it gets more expensive to service that dollar denominated debt, and if they're servicing the debt, then then they're not going to be able to be supporting um, their own growth, and uh, so that is a further headwind for or uh, a number of the economies around the world. Dr. Mann, if we could uh, move over to the domestic economy and something, you know, we mentioned this on television earlier this morning, Mm -hmm. which is scale. Every time a corporate officer brings up the phrase scale, I think of Catherine Mann, folks. And you don't mince any words, Dr. Mann. You say it's nothing more than monopoly. Are we heading towards monopolistic tendencies? I think it's it's a little premature to say that we're headed towards monopolistic fair, tendencies, fair. but but I do think that there's been a lot of mergers and acquisitions um, in the over the last ten years when when funding was cheap and stock market was high, yep. and you know that it, and it's not just an Amazon effect. It's also think about it in the in the intermediate space, whether it be chemicals, whether it be um, you know uh, ag- agricultural space, but also in some top line well, spaces, for example, you know hotels. Yeah, and, but the Kitsaban, so as you correctly state, this is about scale, yeah. which always ends up being a lower labor, a lower labor component. Well, so we, yeah, because what happened is, I say the research. We used to worry about scale, and we used to worry about monopolies because we thought, well, you become a monopolist, and then you raise your prices. Uh, but these days, the research is much more clear that that rather than raise prices, the 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 consequence of of, of scale, uh, consequence of of not, maybe not scale, but the consequences of of less competition, uh, is is the burden is on workers because they can't change jobs to get. Uh, to get higher wages. So wage compression is the consequence of, of uh, less competition. Catherine, great to catch up with you. Joining us from London today, formerly the chief economist of the OECD and now the Citigroup Global Chief Economist.
Joining us now, the pinata Gary Schilling uh, joins us of Amherst College, where he does the physics of economics. Dr. Schilling, I want to look back at your great call of lower interest rates, persistent interest rates, and the chorus quarter to quarter, he's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong. What do the inflationistas most get wrong in their call? How did they, don't give me Paul Krugman 101, give me Gary Schilling 101 on what the inflationistas got wrong. They simply fail to recognize that the world has got too much supply relative to demand. When you have excess of supply relative to demand, prices go down. And the problem was that in the 60s, you had the opposite. With Vietnam and great society on top of a fully employed economy, excess demand prices went up. And a lot of people thought that that's the way God made the world. Mm-hmm. And they didn't realize that things really changed remarkably in the early 80s. I mentioned Abel Bernanke on Friday, Chapter 7 or whatever, is the one little talk on asset prices. Within the comparison of now versus the 60s, back then we had a credit expansion coming out of World War II that boosted that demand. Now we've got a debt expansion in our supply-side lower prices. What does that large debt end up doing to the responsiveness of our listeners to the times they well, live Well, it's, it's deflationary. You think about it when, when debt I was... I knew he was going <laughs> to Of course. That. You know where it was This gonna. is the time, folks, to mention Gary Schilling's classic book, Deflation. <laughs> John, it's the paperback with two blue colors. Vet bill. We literally paid vet bill's vet bill for a year with the royalties off the book Deflation. You're, you're my agent there, Tom. No, 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 no. the reality is that, that you have an entirely different different situation. And, and uh, you know, I, I think people just simply fail to realize that, 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 again, a globalized economy is very, very different. And and when you have a big debt load, it... it uh, Obviously, running up the debt means you got more demand. I mean, even even you know we've had disinflation even with the huge run up in debt globally. Yeah. And now you're getting to the point. You say, how far can this go? Now there's you know nobody put in a number and said this is as far as debt can go, and then it's got to collapse. Well, you certainly feel that you're closer to the top than you are to the bottom. So on Gary, this. and when you start to when you start to see the the debt contraction. Um, obviously, that's very deflationary. A number of years ago, Gary, we talked about the, the concept of the Japanification of the German bond market. I've heard that phrase increasingly over the last week once again. Is that what we face here, the Japanification of core government bond markets in places like Germany? Well, you, you certainly would think so. I mean, Germany obviously is a, has a very strong export economy. They have a, a very, uh, shall we say, restrained view of the world. You look at the average German investor, they got more bonds than stocks. They, you know, stocks are for speculators as far as they're concerned. So you have a, you have a very different attitude there. But, but with, their, uh, with all these self-reinforcing deflationary forces in, in Germany, I mean, very, you know, they're running a government surplus, uh, they, huge exports. Uh, they're now getting squeezed, obviously, with a slowing global economy. Uh, but you have the same kind of, and this is this is true globally. I mean, when you look at the, you look at the demographics. Uh, yeah, I think productivity is going to come back. I think that that you do. What's what's the catalyst for that, Gary? Well, new technologies. The thing is that they have to get big enough to really move the needle. You look at the industrial revolution. It started in. Uh, your country, England and New England in the yep. late 1700s, but it wasn't big enough until after the Civil War, the second half of the 19th century in this country to move the needle. The same was true of railroads. And and right. I think now you have, you know, biotech, robotics, 
Uh, uh, okay, okay, but Gary, let's go. Let's go physics here. The the idea of a mainline economist is the distribution of that productivity. The distribution of that better economy is evenly divided across some form of Gaussian or bell curve space. Baloney. It's a bimodal America. John Edwards is right. It's two Americas. What portion of all these good gains are driving to the haves in this gilded age? Well, they're obviously they're obviously going to the top, but 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 when you have strong economic growth, you always get income polarization. That's that's simply. A, I don't disagree, but we're I looking mean, for I mean, some you other know, path. You, you look at this, where are some of the richest people in the world? They're in China. They're in India. I mean, uh, except for Jeff Bezos. I mean, I mean th- that's what you, when you when you get growth, you get huge yeah. di- dis- disparity. And obviously, uh, you know, in a country like this where we're, we're not happy with that. Uh, you got to wait for things to catch up. Give me up. a legit call on a 30-year bond. How low can that yield go? 2.9. 2%. Oh, come on. 2.00. Two ah, you heard me say that two years ago, 1.99%? 100 basis points lower than we are now. Yeah, 100. And I think 10 years is going to go to 1%. Why? Why? Because I think, I, think we're gonna, I think we're entering a recession. I think we're going to have a recession, and that's going to be the, the final leg down in what, in 1981, I well, said. Well, Grant, if you get an NDER recession, you're right. you are so gloomy on a Monday. <laughs> Take a note. Only book Schilling on Wednesday. On okay. Wednesday. <laughs> okay, Gary Schilling, Safe thank you so much. Just, Gary, thank and, you. And, John, I put out his book on Twitter just, you know, to keep the— I, I saw that. You see, it's a, it's a very nice blue book. We still have a few copies of anybody oh, you have wants a few one. Copies. Oh, there we go. Selected copies. Are we getting paid for this? We protect the copyright of all of our guests. You want high tongue research. It's out of Shanghai and London, and it is absolutely lights out brilliant. Why don't you bring in our next guest? Because everybody's flying around on airplanes, posturing, and I don't buy it for a minute, John Farrell. Miranda Carr joining us now, high tongue international China macro strategist. Miranda, what can we achieve this week as Ambassador Lighthizer and Secretary Mnuchin head over to Beijing? Well, the best that can be hoped for is that the talks continue. Um, I don't think anyone's expecting a a final deal, and hence why the Trump-Xi summit was postponed. Um, But if we can get the... um, The best that can be hoped for is the negotiations can continue. Um, The new tariffs aren't imposed on the 1st of March, and basically they they then continue over the next few months to get some kind of deal in place which can, you know, Trump and she can sign off on, but no um, big announcements this week. We, we think yeah. it, it's still going to be talking. Miranda, we keep talking about the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking down to the March first deadline. Do you mm. consider that deadline a hard deadline, a line in the sand? What is it? Well, if they can just, it, in some ways, it is a hard deadline. But the thing is, they can just push, they can keep the talks going. They can say we'll have another stay of execution. We'll we'll talk for another three months. There's been significant progress on the Chinese side um, in terms of trying to trying to address some of the U.S. concerns. But you know, the, the, you, you still don't have verification. You still don't have the systems of guarantees. You need a long-term framework, and that's going to that's not going to happen by the first of March. Um, so as long as they don't agree not to raise tariffs further, that's probably the best outcome we can hope for. Well, it's the best outcome we can hope for. What's the best outcome China can hope for? To be clear here, Miranda, China really wants to get a deal done. Let's start with first principles. Why does China need a deal? Well, 
it's the one that's being hurt. I mean, the, the, you're seeing the slowdown now coming through. Q4 exports were still strong, but now we're getting um, signs of the weakness in the trade actually coming through into the figures. And you're, you're, you're getting the even the state media guiding down to 6% growth for um, Q1 as a whole. So one of the worst performances um, since, since um, in the last 10 years. Um, so, so, so they need the, the trade to, to, to pick up again um, and, and, and to get investment back in the country because it, it, it's going to be the, the Chinese economy which will suffer. And at the moment, most of the companies are saying, no, we can, we can cope with the tariffs at the current level. 10% yeah. is not too bad. We can sweep up a lot. A lot of the Q4's results comments have been saying we can cope with this level. But if it gets to 25, that's when, that's when the pain can, would start. If, if you put a GDP extrapolation on a move from 10 to 25%, do they go from 6.4, 6.6 down to X percent? Can you gauge that? Well, yeah. I mean, basically, if you had the 25 percent on the full um, to 250, and then you went up to another, you're talking about a GDP hit of between one one percentage points to about 1. Um, 1.3, 1.4. So it would take um, China's GDP below below the target level for 2000 and 2019. And I think you know, this is why the, 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 the China side is being very accommodative in terms of trying to get, trying to get the deal sorted. But it, you know, a lot of this is long-term structural change, and you can't suddenly magic that out and magic the trust of that out uh, you know, just, in, just in, a, in a few weeks of negotiations. And anything that is agreed, the American side of the negotiations, Miranda, wants some kind of enforcement mechanism. How accepting will the Chinese be of what could be pushed forward as an initiative from the U.S. side? Well, the thing is, if, if you get a international framework potentially being introduced, then that could be um, that could be maybe agreed on. But the trouble is, if, you, if you're wanting to get sort of U.S. inspectors coming into the Chinese market, then it may seem as interference by you know why should the U.S. interfere in the in in the Chinese domestic market quite so. So anything which smacks of of you know having U.S. rule in China, I think, would be would be very strongly resisted. I mean, China's still trying to... But if right. it's an international framework, then it may, it, may, it may work better. Well, how does President Xi fit right now? Does he, if, he, if he goes to Mar-a-Lago, does he travel to Mar-a-Lago the same President Xi as the first time around? Or has the domestic calculus in China changed? Well, I think, yes. I mean, the... the the idea of China and the U.S. going from, co- you know, cooperation defining the relationship yeah. to much more competition, um, and yes, she's much more um, about nervous about a lot of the, um, you know, China needs to progress on on, on the technology side, um, but it's now getting into with the Huawei and the um, the sort of IP and the national security. Okay, well, that, let me really. let me interrupt. This is critical. Do you actually believe, Miranda Carr, that the Huawei debate will fold into the trade discussions? Is that just understood? Well, it's difficult to separate the two because you part of the pressure which the the US is is, is highlighting is China right. as a national security risk. Um, and that that's been pushed forward in in several reports in the you know U.S. Um, China committee and also in, in 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 the defense review, where it's saying that manufacturing in China 
represents a national security threat to the to, to the US. And so if you're in a situation where you're you're um, trying to limit um, e- exports of Chinese goods, then of course on a national security yeah. ground, then then that's going to form right. part of the of the dialogue as well. It, 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 right. It's inescapable. Miranda, how many how many how long have you been going to China? How long have you been traveling to China? Uh, since two thousand and seven. So two thousand seven. So you've enjoyed twelve years in in China as well. I got a problem, Miranda. I watched the most wonderful movie in the world this weekend. My favorite year with Peter O'Toole. It's a spectacular movie about 1954 in New York City. And there's a scene in the movie where the young kid goes all out dim sum to to uh, to uh, to to woo the the girl, if you would. I mean, I mean, where's do, this going? Because Miranda's an expert on dim sum. How many things do I need to order when I order dim sum? Do you got to go like he does in the movie, like twenty things? That many? What for for she to order from? Yeah, like takeout. If I do Chinese takeout dim sum in China, do they order like twenty things? Mm-hmm. Yes, but that means you get nice variety. Um, you know, Miranda's not, in not, shock. Not just one. <laughs> I'm just getting hungry. I, I just, I mean, I got to do this like tonight or tomorrow you know, night. You know what you're really talented at? At, at the end of the interview when you ask this really incisive question with this massive build-up and then the guest takes you seriously. It's great. And, and they pause I mean, but and they Miranda, think, what on earth do I say? I, I Surely a, there's something Miranda, related to the need, news on this. I need a high Tong essay out of Shanghai and out of Hong Kong, Cantonese, mm. on dim sum food. That would be of huge value right now. <laughs> yeah. That that'll be. We'll, we'll, we'll try and do that. Miranda's we'll going to put together a forty-page PDF. For I you. want a forty-page. Right. <laughs> Mar- Miranda Carr, thank, thank you. you so much. Greatly, greatly. I will give you a good dim sum place. Do you have downtown? One? I have one downtown for you if you want it. I was in one once, and there was an animal on the wall. What animal oh, was it? It was furry. What animal was it? It was furry. Did, we'll what, what does that mean? It was furry and. It was just you go downtown for dim sum. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you yeah. a place. Yeah, it's a good one. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.